Hello fam and welcome to this episode of A Chat With Pat. This episode is brought to you by the wonderful Lido Lada Cafe. Go down and make sure you go and grab a wonderful coffee or a nice salad roll, a sausage roll, a pie, whatever the girls have got in the cabinet, they will look after you 110%. We love you, Wendy and your team. Keep smashing it even during these tough times. Um, on this episode, I have the wonderful, the powerful, the insightful, smart, intelligent, the legendary Marcus Probert. Gee whiz, I loved having a chat with this great man. He's a psychologist and he's also had stints working with the Collingwood Football Club and the Essendon Football Club in the well-being um, mental health space. Um, we sit back and reminisce at his time, mainly at the Collingwood Football Club, being a lead tenant officer at a house full of draftees, including Scott Pendlebury, Brent McCaffer, Jack Anthony, amongst many other names. Um, he sits back and shares a few stories and a few laughs at, well, for lack of a better word, babysitting some of these lads and some of the insights into their into their mindset and his role more so at the Collingwood Football Club. We touch on about his transition to Essendon Football Club and also his time in a role at Cricket Australia. Um, we look and sit back at men's mental health, social media and the effects that it has, uh, mental health and well-being in general and especially looking after ourselves at these pretty shit times. Um, Marcus was so insightful, like I said, I loved it. It was funny. We had a great laugh but we also had some good take-home messages out of this podcast which I think a lot of people get something out of this. Um, bear with us if there's any audio issues. I've had some internet issues and frequency stuff going on in the background, so my apologies with all that. But nonetheless, the message still rings true in this one. Everyone, please welcome the wonderful Marcus Probert. viewers, listeners, Snake Edwards on the recorder here. This one's a belter. Now, episode 17 of A Chat With Pat, I have Marcus Probert. How are you, mate? Good, thank you. Yeah. yeah that's all right, mate. Any time. It would be rude of me to not ask you how you're going, especially in these times. So, you're tracking along okay. We're just talking off air that yeah. a bit difficult at the moment being a psychologist and things like that. Yeah, look, it is. Yeah. Um, going all right. It's interesting, actually. Everyone looks to the psychologist like they've got their shit together. (laughs) (laughs) But um, as a mental health practitioner, like, you know, some mornings you wake up these days, particularly these these times, and you're like, I don't know if I've got my shit together today. (laughs) (laughs) I'm much the same, too. Like, when a social worker, it's just like, oh. Yeah, well, like we, do, everyone thinks that we we've got it all together, but yeah, nah. you still wake up those days and think, do I really want to do this? But yeah. I think at the end of the day, you, <laughs> you know, you, you draw yourself back to why you want to do this. Yeah, that's right. I, I used, to, I do make the joke um, actually that uh, the psychologist is usually the most fucked in the head in the room. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I'm sure probably people before have um, had a chat to you and, and you yeah. said you're a psychologist. Like, that's right. <laughs> we are, you know, working our own shit out while we're doing it. Yours, no. Exactly. <laughs> now you've got quite the um, resume and CV. I mean, we've had a few chats and um, via email and things like that. And it's quite an extraordinary background. I mean, you seem like a pretty modest man. You've been involved with, with AFL clubs, Collingwood and Essendon since 2005. Cricket Australia, so a bit of the sporting background. Involved at my old uni and. A few Portland locals went to as well. Fed Uni with the wellbeing section there and psychology section there, and amongst many other things. So you're quite adept to mental health and the psychology well, field for quite a long time. Yeah, it's um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, people from Portland who probably remember me back in the nineties. <laughs> remember the kid pushing trolleys at Safeway and <sighs> whatever else. But um, yeah. I, like I, I'll, I'll prime it right here. I bombed out at year 12, like I was terrible in, in school, like just so immature and uh, didn't really put any value on my education at that point in time. And so did a bit of, uh, you know, a lot of retail jobs until I was about 25, 26. And then I was actually, like, I was inspired by the uh, the World Cup in 2002, like the Soccer World Cup. I was watching um, the England-Argentina game, actually. And... Uh, Massive rivalry, Falklands War, England, you know, and uh, and it was a tense game and, and there was a penalty and David Beckham st- stood up to take the penalty. He was the captain at the time. 
rewind four years earlier, he was the villain of the England piece. Yeah, I he, got sent off, yeah, he got sent off against Argentina again in the uh, in the in the quarters, and England lost in penalties, uh, or in sorry, in extra time. Um, and so yeah, he stood up, he took the penalty, he nailed it, he was a hero, and he just like kind of I got I got inspired that night like. Fuck, what am I doing? <laughs> I need to do something. Like I need to change my change my tune. And so I applied for uni about two weeks later. Got in, luckily, at, as a twenty seven year old in two thousand three. And then yeah, did sports psychology. Mm. Ended up being able to do my honours and masters. And then yeah, um, things just went from there. Like I um, was lucky enough mm. that uh, I rang Collingwood at one point while I was doing my um, honours and I just said hey look I want to speak to you know, Simon Lloyd who at that point was the, the psychologist there who's now the footy manager at Geelong yeah. um, just wondering if I could speak to him you know just to pick his brains about the job of being a sports psychologist and um, eventually he got back to me and he said yeah look yeah, I'll come in and come into the um, Lexus Centre at that point Westpac Centre and have a chat you know so I went in there one day with no expectation and Sat down with Simon, who's absolute cracking guy, psychologist by in his background, um, and just talked about psychology and sport and and the like. And then about two months later, I just got this phone call out of the blue from Simon, and he said, "Hey, we've got this opportunity um, at you know at the club. Do you want to do you want to do it?" And I'm like, "Shit, yeah, right, I know, alright." And that was sort of where it went. So three years at Collingwood. Living in a house with all their new draftees every year, um, and working at the club two days a week, as you know, in their well welfare sort of program, and then uh, from that, yeah, met some people, got a job at Essendon, full time, uh, worked there under the Matthew Knights in the Matthew Knights sort of era. Yeah. Um, I did resign. I didn't get sacked. <laughs> 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 to clar- clarify that, yeah. Um, after two years, uh, got an opportunity to work at Cricket Australia in um, an interesting role, actually. Mm. I thought I was going in there to, to, to do education around drug and alcohol and, um, and sort of wellbeing practices. And, and then when I got there, um, I was apparently going to be the saviour of all. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, you Google me, you'll see I, I it. Did, I did see that article. I did. <laughs> Anyone who's not Marcus Probe at Cook Australia, they will see the saviour. They will write the saviour with your name. Oh, right. The saviour, <laughs> the corruption buster. I had phone calls from mates saying, what the hell? <laughs> anyway, yeah, so um, I didn't last very long at Cricket Australia, to be quite honest. That was a yeah. very archaic um, organisation. But yeah. yeah, and then made my way to the uni and, Worked there for five or six years, and now in the country, like back in the country now, I really didn't like living in Melbourne. Um, yeah. Got a couple of kids, so that's the background. Yeah, an interesting way of going about it. But yeah, sorry, why? I didn't bore you there. No, that's all right. But why athletes? Why sport and psychology? I mean, um, were you well, always quite interested in that, even growing up. Yeah, I mean, I've always loved sport. And, um, yeah, yeah, loved just. Love playing sport. Never really that good at it, but um, no, I mean, you know, okay. Love my cricket in Portland. Obviously played it, played at Colts, and was lucky enough to win premierships because there were some great cricketers there, and yeah. they dragged us along a bit, um, you know. But as a young bloke, I suppose before we moved to Portland, I lived in Albury and um, played hockey there, and I was mad hockey mad. Um, you know, played in a men's premiership when I was 11 and um, was probably, I had aspirations of playing at a really, really, really high level. Um, and then we moved to Portland and, you know, hockey's not a massive deal in Portland, certainly not in the early 90s. There was one men's team and one women's team. When I got there, the, the guy said, well, you can play men's, you can play women's. And I was like, oh, that's pretty offensive. Um, and so my love for hockey sort of petered out. So I guess it was almost the reason, sorry, I tell that story is psychology and sport. I looked at it as like, how many other people have these missed opportunities or or, yeah. or don't necessarily fulfill their potential? And how that affects them later on. Yeah, well. and, yeah. yeah. And also just, just oh, like if you can, if you can get one young person to fulfill their potential, like what, 
how great could that be for them? And so I guess, and harking back to that story about the World Cup, a redemption story almost for David Beckham, it's like, you know, how many other people out there have tripped along the way mm. and, and not picked themselves up, not been resilient enough to, like, stick at it and then succeed? And so it was kind of like that's, that was the original mm. catalyst for going to, to university and, and studying sports psychology as opposed to just regular psychology, yeah. And, you know, that, that, that whole notion, it's always, like, sports seems to just be the product of it. Like, that's just the place where it all kind of comes alive. Like, yeah. It seems like everyone has those kind of moments as well, like, in work, yeah, in the workplace, or whatever or not. Yeah, um, absolutely. But it's just that these people and these athletes feel it in the biggest spotlight. Yeah. Imaginable, yeah. <laughs> which is tenfold yeah. for their mental yeah. health. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, it's, it's not even about elite sport, though, sometimes. Exactly, yeah. You know, there's, like, it, like, country footy is getting that professional now. Like, like <laughs> that much money kicking around country footy. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you you know you you get paid a grand a week to play footy at a local, at a at a country club. It's a lot of money. I don't hold it. The pressure and expectation that comes with it far out. Like you know, you you hear the blokes on Can Hill. Going, oh, geez, oh, he's not getting a kick. He's getting paid heaps. He should be doing better. Like, you know, who do you go to for that? You can't talk to um, local man in the street. He just expects you to do your best. So yeah, you need you need to come and speak to someone. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Now, yeah. you mentioned one um, very, I guess, intriguing role. You were the tenant officer. So correct me if I'm wrong. At Collingwood Football Club for draft yeah. meetings. Yeah. So that would have been quite an interesting time, especially <laughs> having 18 to what, 20, 21 year olds. And Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, it was interesting. I used to do it for the um, child and family services here in Ballarat when I was at uni. And so um, I'd lived with three sort of young lads who were between the age of 16 and 18. Yeah. Been in group homes or, or, or foster care. And so when I went and spoke, spoke to Simon Lloyd, Back in the day, I told him what I was doing, and and then he was he must, something must have clicked, and they um they bought a house in Williamstown. It was a million dollar house, like amazing place. Um, and he rings me and says, "Hey, do you want to come and live with footballers?" And I'm like, oh, "Well, I'm doing my masters down in Melbourne. Well, yeah, why not? Like, they pay my rent and um, living in Williamstown in a cracking house. But yeah, so the first year there, I um it was sort of a bit of a pilot because normally draftees come in and they and they get billeted out to different families but um so that year i had uh an interesting group i had um scott pendlebury and he, he got drafted pretty high um a lad called ryan cook who um played a few games for collingwood he's a bit of a legend in wa footy now uh, south Fremantle, i think um danny stanley who played a bunch of games oh, yeah. and went to gold coast and did really well uh, and Jack Anthony, who was a bit of a um, character in the uh, scene there for a while. I've heard some things that he's done up in store. And that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, a, a, a mixed bunch, but a cracking bunch. Yeah. Um, and that first experience was really cool. Uh, and then, oh, you know, the year year later, I had a you know all-premiership group of boys, Brent, Brent McCaffer, uh, Nathan Brown, Ben Reid, Tyson Goldsack. And then the following year, I had a... Um, a mixed bunch. I had uh, Lockie Keefe, who's still playing mm-hmm. footy at GWS. Uh, Brent McCaffrey stayed in the house for another year. Um, had a lad called Toby Thulin, who yeah. came from the, the Murray. And then uh, John McCarthy, who obviously um, he died on the footy trip, yeah. back, which was tragic. Yeah. But um, amazing experiences. Uh, I don't know how much permission I have to tell some stories. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> as much permission as you want, mate. Like, <laughs> I could only imagine, but like you would have been like, like, like mid late twenties, and then they had yeah, like, yeah. I could only imagine like you know <laughs> things. You know, it's a bunch of boys in a house. Like, I live with a few mates in my office. Here, my mates, like it's gonna be crazy. And there'd be a few characters as well, which would make yeah. it all more interesting. Yeah. Like, like you yeah. Have, yeah. <laughs> well, look, I'll. <laughs> Yeah, the, the lads are really cool. I mean, someone likes, I mean, everyone knows Scott Penderbury, obviously, <laughs> legend of the game now. Um, you, you could see it early on. Like, yeah, I was going to ask you that if he was yeah, in uni straight away. You could see that he was going to, you didn't know he was going to play 300 games, but you could see that he was going to be someone who maximised his, his potential. 
interestingly, early on, he, he came in and he had glandular fever. So he, when he got drafted, he couldn't train for the first couple of months. Um, and so he came in a bit later. Um, and he came in pretty cocky. Like, you know, obviously he played basketball for Australia and he was a bit of a gun in that. And then he got drafted because he switched sports. Um, but he came in pretty, pretty cocky. And I reckon about two weeks in, the lads at the club sort of said, Oi, you know, you're going to write these checks. You've got to be able to cash. <laughs> but, um, and he just switched. He just switched his, he just dropped all that shit and worked his ass off. And I remember watching a game, his first game at Williamstown. So Williamstown were the affiliate club at that point. Um, and I was sitting next to Neil Baum in the, in the stand, just watching the boys. Cause I used to go watch every game, you know, try to show a bit of support. Also, I'm a bit of a footy nuffy, so. Yeah. Um, and uh, I just remember him floating along the wing and taking a almost a hanger, and Neil Baum just going to me, these kids not playing at Williamstown very long. Um, you know, and obviously Neil Baum's... <laughs> yeah, he's got a, got a fair bit of knowledge about footy, so... And, yeah, he was right. After about 10 rounds, I think Scotty debuted, and I'm not sure he's ever played reserves again. Yeah, um, yeah. But, uh, but, yeah, we used to have good good fun playing. You know, we had FIFA tournaments with the boys. And um, I uh, remember dominating that in the first year. But, <laughs> and then Brent McAffer always had my number. In the <laughs> now, you mentioned the personality thing, like, you know, yeah. handles, you know, I was thinking, was he always, you know, I could just imagine him being the pro early on in his career, you know, that kind of, you know, like Matt Rao, they talk yeah. about now, kind of that stereotypical hard work an 18-year-old. You know, with well, footy yeah. is always that clear cut with personalities in well, AFL and yeah, not necessarily. not necessarily. Yeah. I think <clears throat> we knew he was going to be good, but it wasn't until he wasn't until his preseason, the second year, where he he said to me, um, he obviously wanted to take it seriously, and he had a taste of senior footy at that point, and wanted to go further, and he, and he sidled up. He said, "Look, I'm." I'm going to the best worker at the club and I'm going to mirror them. So in the pre-season, he basically buddied up with Paul Curia at the time and um, and did everything that Paul Curia did. And if you did everything that Paul Curia did, you were going to be um, fit, got tough, um, resilient, because that's what Licker did. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a willingness. There's a, there's a, the pers- in terms of personality, there's a want to be better and to do everything you can and probably drop some of the um, distractions out of your life, like getting on the piss with your mates or, you know, being distracted by women or whatever it is, um, you know, or that sort of stuff, that ego sort of stuff. Um, There's a different, it's a different kind of ego. Like the ego is not about the external like glory. The ego is about being internally driven to be better than everyone else. And, and and the and the external ego will get fed from that. We well, yeah, so often hear those stories about the best, like LeBron. And, yeah, you know, like um, really? Michael Jordan. Like everyone's seen the yeah. last dance. We're saying the crazy stories there. It is that same kind of notion as well. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Internal drive. It's not for anyone else's need except your own. But then it's almost addictive. Like, mm. um, look, I need to be the best. I need to be the hardest worker. I need to be the best trainer. I need to be setting an example and there's no wonder you know it's, it's no it's no mystery why he's a captain and still the captain uh, and it's no mystery why he's played 300 games he prepares himself in an amazing way and uh, always has and i mean i haven't been involved since to at, at collingwood since 2008 but i've no doubt that even after his 30 years his practices are the same and you know yeah. he's never been in trouble you know like <laughs> played 300 games and never yeah. been in trouble off the field that tells you something doesn't it yeah, 100%. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But now, yeah. was it difficult being in that house and kind of, I guess you were, I could imagine, kind of the main focal point of having to at times put some authority on yeah. a bunch of 18 yeah. year olds and you would have been still in your 20s. Was it kind of sometimes contradicting you? It was. Like, yeah, pulling yeah. them up for some things that you yeah. thought, well, it's really not that bad or they're just being kids. And, but, yeah. Yeah. Was it quite yeah. hard in that way? Yeah, it was. I mean, um, we had some expectations. I mean, everyone in Williamstown knew that the Collingwood boys lived at this house. So if we had parties or anything, they would have been all over it. Uh, and I know that there were a couple of occasions where, um, I mean, I got home one 
one night after I'd been at my own footy club function and uh, I got home and the place is fucked. Like, oh. not, well, not fucked as in, you know, it's not, it wasn't like American party kind of crash, but it was just it was shit everywhere. Um, it was a Sunday night or something. The boys shouldn't have been out and they were. And I picked up the phone and I rang one of them and I'm like, get your fucking asses home. <laughs> you should not be out and I shouldn't have to come home to this shit. Yeah. They did, and they did, and they were great. Um, but, uh, but you know, I, I don't think there was ever a time with those boys, all those 12 boys in, my, in the house that we lived in where they pushed the limits too far. <laughs> I think one day, <laughs> but the only time I ever had to make someone go and apologise, and I won't name them, but, um, but uh, apparently, uh, <laughs> apparently a little kid kept coming and door knocking or... or Whatever, and so one of the boys <laughs> stood in here, got it was in the top floor of the house, and we had a had a bunch of eggs, and was waiting for the little kid to come again. Full <laughs> of kids got a got a few eggs on him, <laughs> and the parents cracked the shits. They lived down the road, and so yeah, we had to get uh, that young lad to go and apologise to the parents for. Throwing eggs, eggs on his kid. <laughs> well, he just wanted an autograph. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, who knows? Um, <laughs> uh, the, the boys are really good. They, you know, they come in with a level of maturity and understanding, and I'm just lucky that I had a bunch of lads who um, were respectful, you know, real good country boys, most of them, um, yeah. and, and real respectful. You know, I, I probably don't think I've met a better person um, in my time than, than someone like Tyson Goldsack who, you know, eats every ounce of of longevity and talent out of his body, but also was just a cracking bloke along the way. Like, um, I, I challenge you in your research in the future to find someone to say a bad word about Tyson oh, Goldsack. Yeah. yeah, just a just a legendary bloke. And, and, and guys like, you know, Nathan Brown, who just, um, you know, his mum works at, uh, Ballarat Uni, Fed Uni back in the day. She was my lecturer when I was in the first year doing sports. She did sports management. And um, to be able to like reconnect, like just great values, yeah. Um, yeah. Someone like Jack Anthony, different character, um, really loyal to his mates and, and stuff. You wouldn't have wanted to walk into his bedroom with a UV light and, <laughs> and not sunglasses because that, that, that shit would have lit up like... <laughs> Christmas dream. <laughs> oh, great. <okay. laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but yeah, anyway. Uh, it like the, the best of times. Really good time, yeah. Really good time. Yeah. yeah. Now, why do you think, do you think the, the space of like obviously mentality within society in Australia has shifted along within the professional realm as well lately? Like I'm sure from when you started then, it would have been really momentum shift and even more so now yeah why, why do you think that is so is it just because old general stigma or because more players start to also talk about it? well i mean when i first started it was still something that was like oh you know i've got to go and see the psychologist or you know someone's told me i'm struggling um excuse me but uh i think i think the way i think the you know, there's been some trailblazers, obviously blokes like Nathan Thompson coming out back in the late night, oh, sorry, the late 2000s and talking about his battles, um, kind of give permission for, for blokes to particularly to kind of go, okay, well, maybe I need to get help as opposed to just trying to, you know, bag cement, harden, harden up sort of. Harden up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, all that old um, crap narrative where it's like, oh, well, he said, well, he plays AFL, he's got, he's on a That's right, right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Tom Boyd's a perfect example. Yeah, Danny Crawley. Danny Crawley, yeah. well, a tragic example. But, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I think certainly society in general has has started to understand that actually mental health is uh, an important aspect of life and, um, and it's not weak. You're not weak if you go on, if you acknowledge that you're struggling a bit. Um, whereas, but I think back in the day, it was a sign of weakness, you know, uh, you know, and there was derogatory terminology, particularly around guys seeking help. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, I look at the school environment. I mean, at the moment, I'm working at a school here in Ballarat, secondary school, and our, you know, our numbers 
still still heavily skewed towards women females seeking help um you know it's it's a 60 40 ratio but i imagine if i'd been at a school 15 20 years ago it would have been 80 20 uh, yeah yeah so we're getting better and we and we need those role models to come out and say hey i'm struggling but we also need blokes particularly the ardent fucking um so supposedly tough guys who have never had a problem, who got smacked as a kid and didn't affect them, to, to just lighten, lighten up on, you know, on their comments on Facebook and the Herald Sun and whatever and, and let people be yeah. okay to struggle. No, like... Um, and, like, that's a, and that's a great you know, point you make just because you haven't identified you know, that you're not going... You know that classic example that you're not going through anything wrong to sell. Yeah. Yeah. doesn't make anyone else's less or nah. worse like and there's, there's still that and i think you'd agree there's still that little bit of demographic there oh out there well a lot and, absolutely and some of that is also because of social media or, yeah. you know, a lot of people i think now say a lot of things behind an iphone or a laptop oh, and they wouldn't say it to someone else's face yeah good yeah yeah and it's and, yeah. and then they just think because afl players are professional athletes because they've got all these things that they don't that they're into yeah. yeah, yeah, but they've got uh, just as hard as anyone else has to be. Absolutely, people too, mate. Like they're people who have, um, who have good and bad upbringings. They have they're people. You know, just because you're on AFL list doesn't mean your parents are together. Doesn't mean your parents were good. Doesn't mean that your life was easy. Um, there were a number of young lads who you just thought. Fuck, dude! How did you get here? And you've yeah. done an amazing job, and and they're still copying shit um, from it's it. Probably, it's probably an element of making it to that point where it's made their life probably worse. But they just love yeah. it so much more, so yeah. much they don't want to get rid of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, like a perfect example from my days at Essendon, uh, and I'll name him. I hope God, I never never worked with him in a psychological capacity, but you know, a bloke like Kyle Reimers, who you know wore the flashy boots. One day he kicked seven or eight goals against Gold Coast, I think. Yeah. I reckon it was um, 12, to be honest. Yeah. Okay. Really, really, different, really different cat. Came from, you know, a long way back in terms of, you know, his understanding, you know, just being supported in life. Yeah. But used to cop it, like, you know. Um, and, and he survived in that system for five or six years with repeated injuries and whatever else. But, um, you know... But people don't understand that. People just look and go, oh, he wears flashy boots and uh, he's playing AFL. He's an easy target. Let's let's go to town. So, um, you know, yeah, there's just no understanding. And I guess, you know, I've been guilty of hanging shit on people. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I got a job at Cricket Australia. In my interview, uh, I said, look, I've got to tell you this, guys, because um, it was all guys, obviously, Cricket Australia, they didn't employ a woman. To, no, they, they did actually. Um I was born in England. I idolised the England cricket team. I said, look, I, I've got to tell you this because I don't want you to think that I'm going to come in here and, and hide the fact that I support England. <laughs> it's still who, was, who, was, who was sitting opposite of you? Who was that? Was, um, there was, uh, I can't remember, actually. Nah, there Pete Moore or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 ben Oliver, I think, who was a Victorian cricketer and he's now, I think, one of the very high ups in Cricket Australia. I can't remember who the other two were, but um, yeah, and they still gave me the job. And then England won the Ashes that year in Australia in 2010, and I couldn't contain myself because it was on, <laughs> on all day during, you know, when we were working there, it is the cricket in, in the corner, and every time Jimmy Anderson get a wicket, I'd be like, fucking <laughs> 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 I don't know where I was going with that story, but... Um, <laughs> it was about just hanging shit on people going back. About yeah, yeah, people. So, yeah, so I mean, I've I've got a particular distaste for Dave Warner. I think anyone who's watching this or listening to this in Portland would know that. Um, and yeah, I've written some, you know, made some comments about it. Never like directly to him, or whatever. I've always, you know, Dave Warner's a piece of shit or whatever on my yeah. Facebook. Sometimes, when, particularly when he makes a hundred and he does that fucking little jump. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Driving daggers into my heart. <laughs> but, but my, yeah. my, I guess my uh, dislike comes from a place of, um, you know, almost begrudging um, 
respect. Like, yeah, yeah it really comes from like a place of your values, and it just doesn't get right. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, they're people. Mate. They're people too, and they have feelings, and they're allowed to. Just because you know, tomboy gets paid a million dollars a year, doesn't mean he hurts any less than someone else. I'm sure that you know he sleeps in a nice bed and has got nice things around him, but doesn't make them um, feel any better. Yeah, with nah. that. <laughs> they, I mean, they're just things eventually. Exactly. Yeah. It's all like your happiness and how sad you are is all on, this, on a spectrum. Like Absolutely. no matter how happy you are, that happiness is still going to feel the same where you have. Yeah. Like, whether you're with your mates or you're with your missus. Or, That's right. Yeah. It's like, um, that as well. Yeah. So it's, it's all relative to your experiences and, um, you know, I, one day, a few years back, when I was at Essendon, we did a we did the Kokoda walk with a bunch of kids from like Flemington and whatever. And you go through the villages on that walk, and there's these little villagers who have got like just one set of clothes, no shoes, no nothing in terms of like any material stuff, just a hut and a ball. And uh, you you would struggle to find a kid that wasn't smiling, like. Um, so it's all relative, like exactly, yeah. And I, I can completely um, agree with that because when I went back, because my mum's Filipino and I went back last year to the yeah. Philippines, yeah. Like our family is like forty people, yeah. like in our family, this little commune, like small yeah. as, and they're yeah. the happiest people. Like when we come home, and they're just like, oh, look here, it's just like this is what yeah. like, true happiness is. Like having nothing, really, just having a real simplistic. You yeah. on values and life, like I've got food, I've got family, that's all you need. Yeah, much like you're familiar with the Resilience Project. Yes, I, uh, I think that's brilliant. I know would love to get your thoughts on that, with especially who you go into AFL clubs and sporting clubs and really enticing that message. But much the same, yeah. Oh, um, I think there's probably not a session that I have with anyone that goes by where we don't talk about gratitude, where we don't talk about um, reflecting on the things that we do notice and have and the resilience project is amazing like and I, I, to be honest back when i was in footy clubs i think it was in its infancy it might it might not even have been a, a, in an iteration yet um but we you know at the, at the school i'm at now every kid's got a resilience project diary yeah. so we so the school has their their product in a diary and and they're supposed to every morning in their like morning kind of um group before classes go through their diary and, and fill in, you know, what they're grateful for from the day before. Or um, I think gratitude's massive. Um, so we miss the little things in life. And I, I'm guilty of this as well. You know, I'm looking for the big achievements to, to fulfil my sense of pride or happiness. Yeah. But it's not the big things. It's not, you know, winning a premiership or it's not doing something amazing. Sometimes it's... It's getting a hug from your kid or it's sometimes it's just walking out in the sun and feeling it on your face. You know, they're the things we should be grateful for, but we, we overlook. Um, and it's a, massive, it's a massive factor in psychology if we can start to kind of like rein it in and start to look at the little things again um, because that's life. Like little things are life. Um, big things, yeah, signposts, but... Little things are what get us through, you know. Having a good meal with your kids or listening to your, your young fella laugh or um, having a good interaction at work with someone or, um, yeah, you know, going for a walk and just feeling the breeze or listening to a good song or whatever it is, oh, all those that. little things, yeah. Yeah, like, you absolutely hit the nail on the head. Like, even, you know, just going away, out of your way, something. Like, I've... My mates probably get annoyed at how much I tell them I love them. Well, I tell them I love them every single day. Like, and it's like, like little things like that because I know how good it feels for myself. And Absolutely. grateful to know that you've got someone there or anything there or just those little things are massive. Well, like you just said there, um, probably a sense of compassion to others. I mean, I don't know if you've ever read The Art of Happiness by the... I've heard of it, yeah. Um, there's a whole chapter in there on compassion and contributing to others. And how um, how that builds you up more than anything you could do for yourself, and it's true. Like if you, I challenge anyone who's ever done anything for someone else without want back to say that that was a shit experience. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that helped an old lady, you know, carry her bags to the to her car and walked away going, "Oh, that was fucked." Yeah. 
and yeah. it, and oh, it's, you're completely right. It's and when it is like you mentioned, when it is authentic, yeah. it actually has you know, that oxytocin. Like it, it really it rewires your brain when it is authentic, yep. and you feel better and grateful for everything. Yeah. Now, if you're filming it all the way and then you post it online and you're looking for a hundred likes, <laughs> for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Uh, but if you're just doing it, if you just see, yeah, if you just see an old lady struggling with her trolley out of the supermarket, like a million people would have seen that in Portland going down that hill in Sa- at Safeway. Like, and you say, hey, let me let me take that for you, and you take it to a car with it. Like, I no one would ever walk away from that going, oh fuck, that's ruined my day. Yeah. Like, you know, so yeah, absolutely, doing things for others is huge. It's huge. Now you mentioned one thing there, social media. And um, especially with athletes, again, they're not immune to social media <laughs> scrutiny and news. Yeah. Did you have any, um, I guess you can't go into it, how much of that did impact your practicing interactions with players and athletes? When you were uh, I know it was a bit early in the piece. Yeah, it probably was. It was probably the infancy of just Even just news and newspapers, because be, I can imagine we'd be relentless in Melbourne, the Herald Sun. <laughs> like, yeah. was, was that quite um, a big I guess, piece in your work with athletes? Um, probably not at that point. Certainly, I mean, I don't think most of the guys that I worked with didn't necessarily, weren't necessarily too affected by the news media because the news media wasn't necessarily doing anything out of the ordinary that they weren't already hearing from coaches and stuff. Yeah. So whenever, you know, someone does a, a, a reflection or their assessment of a game, um, and says a player struggled or whatever. That, that player already knew that. Um, and, yeah, it was in the infancy of Facebook and, and whatever, and there was certainly no Twitter at that point, no Instagram. So it's hard for me to comment on that, um, that aspect of footy players' lives. But I can certainly see it in the, in the youth of today in terms of the kids that I work with at school, um, the pressure and the expectation to have this persona that is... All the things we talked about before when we talked about ha- authentic happiness, yeah. but it's not authentic. Yeah. No, it's forced. It's fake. It's, you know, I've got, a, I've got these streaks on Snapchat that I've got to keep up and oh, yeah. there's pressure to do that or, um, or, you know, so-and-so didn't, you know, didn't respond to a, like, thing that I did. And, oh, yeah, they didn't like my comment or... Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's almost like this false economy of... of, um, of social support whereas you know i can only go by when i was growing up you, you got validation in your in your interactions with people and they were real interactions or they you just didn't, didn't interact there wasn't any other distraction there wasn't no there wasn't any other way to interact except to do it physically um and so i think yeah there's this there's a false state now of of um validation which and um yeah probes as we were saying before, how, what was your transition from the Collingwood Footy Club to Essendon? How did that yeah. come about, mate? Yeah. So um, at the time, I'd been working with the AFLPA, you know, AFL Players Association through some of the wellbeing programs we did at Collingwood. Um, There's a lady called Lee Russell who, who worked at uh, the AFLPA at that stage and she got, got appointed as the manager of um, people and culture at Essendon. Um, mm. And she... Uh, identified a need at Essendon and um, and like any job in the AFL you you rarely get on um, you know seek.com and find a job in the AFL like it's all uh, in-house kind of stuff. <laughs> so yeah she sort of said look there's a job available do you want to apply for it um, and I went through that channel and, and got a full-time job at Essendon so Collingwood had no qualms about that they just weren't in a position to provide another full-time oh. position at that, at that stage they already had a full-time psychologist and um, you know, in the late 2000s, well-being wasn't necessarily invested in as probably as much as it is. Um, so, yeah, I went across to Essendon and started full-time there in, in that capacity. And, you know, that was a really interesting time, a great, great experience, some wonderful lads at Essendon. But, um, yeah, that was how the transition went. And all the boys that I lived with were really supportive, you know. Yeah. Because they knew that, you know, job two days a week wasn't going to, sustain you know a life um, so yeah no it's, yeah, it's good yeah. now it was was did you see any i guess you would have been quite developed in your role by then by the time you 
got to Essendon. Yeah. Your scope, did it yeah. quite change how your perspective was seen with players and performance and mental health and that kind of thing as you were going along um, and the way you were seeing things and the way <laughs> you went from living with 18 and 19, 20-year-olds to working with a whole list, essentially? Yeah. Yeah, look, it was, it was interesting, actually. Um, it's harder in some respect being a mental health practitioner. <laughs> to start to be um, more observant in the way that I did my practice. And, and even then, like, you know, working full-time in a club, you still get access to lads and people, you know, six hours a day, four hours a day, whatever. So, again, it's different to being a regular psychologist where you only see people once every moon. Um, but it's certainly, I mean, I guess like any practitioner, as you get more experience, you, you pick up on a lot more. And I think, like, if I went back now, oh, the way I do things would be so much different. Yeah. You know, with, with an extra 10 years under my belt in terms of experience. But um, now, look, I, I think my, my theory of psychology and practice is um, I'm probably not the most uh, technical or theoretical person going around I, I truly believe that the relationship is the most important thing and yeah, so and building rapport and yeah yeah absolutely so I, I don't think that's ever really changed it was just easier back then because you were with people a lot. we were talking about off there how difficult it is now doing consultations yeah because you i'm much of the same i reckon like i yeah. probably build my practice around Singing down and building a report out with people having yeah. the odd joke or something like that. Yeah. And how yeah. hard it is now to do it over a phone. It's just. Abs- yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm. Like a wall there. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. You don't pick up the physical cues. You can't see someone's leg tapping repeatedly while they're telling you a story, or, you know, um, you can't hand them the tissue box if they're crying. Like, there's all these things that build rapport or develop a relationship that you can't do now. Um, fortunately, we're in the era where we can use video technology at least to see the person. Um, although, you know, sometimes seeing a person isn't great when you've I've got a bung eye at the moment. Like, <laughs> Forrest Whitaker. You know, so there are times you don't want to be videotaped. But, yeah. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it, it really does change things. And um, But I, I guess if I go back to your original question, the one thing that I've maintained from day one is that if I can build a good relationship with people, I'm much more likely to be effective in working with them. Um, and uh, it doesn't matter who you are. No, matter. it doesn't. It doesn't. And it's interesting. Um, and I'd love to do some research on this. I'm sure there's been research done, but swear as a practitioner swearing, um, a lot of people frown on it, but I reckon there is nothing more powerful than someone telling you a, a really difficult story and you just saying, Fuck. Yeah. No, gee. And I've, I'm, anecdotally, I've had so many clients, not just in footy, not just in schools, but also privately, who go, as soon as you said the word fuck, I relaxed. Because I didn't, because you, because I, it took, it takes the kind of, I don't know, with psychologists, there's this level of like professor, academic kind of person yeah, there. That, yeah, that's right. The stereotypical, you're on a couch, I'm on. I'm the, the doctor. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I, you know, one of the things I tell the people I work with and, and I've got to I supervise you know, students and whatever is don't be afraid sometimes to be yourself. And if you swear naturally, which I swear naturally, um, you can still do it. As long as it's in context, as long as it's not offensive and crude, um, because it helps people understand that you're a person too, and it builds rapport. It really does. Um, so a well placed Australian, like, absolutely like, demographic, like yeah, it's embedded yeah. to us. Like, yeah, we like that's a great. There's also about that emotional relationship to the word, like in the context yeah. that you say it. Like, absolutely, that, yeah. that hit me hard. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's almost like we wouldn't use that word if it wasn't for something serious or something deep and no. meaningful. And yeah, absolutely, yeah, I completely agree. And, yeah, and absolutely. Like we talk about um, did a little bit of training. It's interesting that because did a little bit of training and 
myself with uh, drug and alcohol based CBT. And yeah. um, they're one of the they have two amazing professors, facilitators. I like on the board for CBT. And one of the biggest things they said is, what do you think of the two words they say? Like, you know, people when they say they relapse or they want to have, you know, use their substances, and they stick it around or kick it off. Yeah. They're trying to kick something. So they say, fuck it. And when I said then, I'll say the same thing the boys when they just want to have a few yeah. beers or I can't heal or whatever or not. And you yeah. think that's so true because there's that emotional release to it. Like, it's like, fuck it. Yes. Or once I'm going to hurt. Like, yeah. And so yeah. I think that's, that's the same right. kind of thing as what you're saying as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, Absolutely. no one's immune to it. Like, no. No. No, exactly. But if you want to build a good relationship, like if you're a practitioner in training or whatever, if you want to build a relationship, if you naturally drop, you know, swear words into your vernacular uh, or your vocabulary just because it's it fits, then do it. Um, if you're someone who doesn't do it regularly, don't do it because you don't use it effectively then. <laughs> Were you surprised at all throughout your time working, again, working in that yep. space, about how many athletes were quite affected in some way, shape or form? Because I could imagine you would have been the one-stop shop man you know, it would have taken yeah. a longer lot on. Were you quite surprised or about just how much? Nah, not really. I, I, I mean, I suppose um, probably what helped me working in those environments is I never put these boys on a pedestal. Like, I've never been someone who goes, oh, my God, that's yeah, so-and-so, yeah, they're amazing. Right. Like, that would have um, been effective practice as well. Yeah. Um, so once you, once you realise these are just people who have a job that is um, – you know, in a different field to yours, then you start to understand that actually, nah, you'd expect, you expect them to still have, you still have people who really struggle. You resilient people used to have people who are less resilient. Um, yeah. You know, so I, I probably was never um, shocked by anything. Um, it was, yeah, just the way it was. Yeah. 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 Now you mentioned before now, you've changed a different kind of scope and demographic working with kids at school. Yep. I'm sure that's brought about some different challenges and experiences. So yeah, it certainly did. I yeah. mean, whenever you work with anyone under 18, yeah, yeah suddenly the ethical dilemmas and, and the things that you need to report versus what you don't report are different. But um, again, like, you know, I'm 45 now and I like to think I'm a bit youthful, but probably not in the eyes of an, a 16-year-old. Yeah. But... um. But it's about being able to connect like with people and if you can't connect with a teenager, then you're not going to be effective. So, you know, I think being able to swear naturally, being able to understand what a young person is going through at the moment um, is important. And, I, you know, as a psychologist or as a mental health worker or whatever it is, you might know your shit. You might know every theory under the sun. But if you can't hold a relation, if you can't hold a conversation <laughs> with someone, you're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just being a health professional, like especially like yeah, yeah just a person, like you know, at the end of the day, I've always been a believer is that the um, you know, what you're reflecting is going to come back to you. Like, so yep. if you're not having meaningful relationships and you have a good amount of people around you. Something you're doing, something you absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What's the common denominator in all this? I, yeah. I often say that all the time because if you're working with an individual, the common denominator is always the individual. Yes, exactly. So if they're continually saying that this shit's happening to them and it's in all different walks of life, you'd be like, "All right, what's the common denominator here, mate? It's you. Yeah. <laughs> Let's look at you instead of blaming everyone else around you for all yeah, these yeah. things that are going on in your life." Um, yeah. You know, the victim mentality I've talked about oh, guests before and it's yeah. such a dangerous, toxic thing. Yeah, it is, yeah. It's power in being a victim though. That's the problem these days. Yeah, it's yeah. Just as power, it's just as much power in being a victim uh, than there is being a perpetrator in some respects. Um, yeah. Depends on the... Yeah, now, exactly right. I can agree more. But um, in regards to now in these pretty shit times in isolation, yeah. what would yeah. be your kind of message and I guess ways that you think you'd like people to hear and just getting to it like yeah, anything that you'd hope that people would take away from this because I've um, had my thoughts about it but. yeah um, oh, look, 
I'll be pretty, pretty hypocritical here. I reckon my alcohol intake's increased significantly since this lockdown. But um, I, I think, um, I, like, it, you'll love the analogy of a body of water, right? Um, if a body of water is moving, it's generally pretty healthy. Um, but if a body of water stops moving, it starts to build scum and, you know, stagnate and get gross and have flies and shit around it and stink. <laughs> and I think as you, as people, we're kind of the same. If we stop moving for too long and we stagnate, we get gross mentally, physically, whatever. So I'd like to think that people have learned and or people will implement this theory of like, keep moving. Um, whether it's moving physically, whether it's moving emotionally, whether it's socially, just keeping connected. If you keep moving, you'll probably be okay. But if you stop and you stop for a long period of time, it will get gross. Um, and I think we probably, I think, you know, people will probably resonate with that because we've all been forced to kind of, well, we've had a damn wall put up. So it's up to us now to kind of force the movement as opposed to previously when we just have to go, we have to get up in the morning, we have to go to work. You know, we're forced in some way to keep flowing, whereas now it's like you got to do it yourself. And I don't know, that's probably the thing I've taken out of it the most. Or, I love that one. Since, yeah. At the sense things are getting spine, folks. I love that one. <laughs> <laughs> body of water. Yeah, it's a body of water, mate. Yeah. We are. Like, yeah. yeah, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the thing I can take away from all this is, you know, thanks heaps of probes. Um, I really appreciate you coming on. Maybe we should do this again sometime, I reckon. Yeah, no worries. After um, isolation, but thank you for coming on. Yeah. hold you up. It's lunchtime on a sad day. I'm yeah. Sure. Better things you probably want to be doing, but I appreciate it. Nah, no, nah, this has been fun, actually. Take a, take a lot out of this, mate. So, right, yeah, it's been right. fun. Hopefully it hasn't bored people too much. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, bro. But, um, yeah, no worries. Thanks heaps, buddy. How about that for an episode, guys? I hope you all really enjoyed that one. Quick shout out to my man, Michael Peters, the man behind the camera, and also big, big love to 3RPC for allowing us to utilize the studio space. Without you guys, none of this would be possible. So big thank you. Please make sure you all follow at a chat with Pat on Instagram. Subscribe to the podcast via Spotify and iTunes, and please don't be afraid to leave a review. We are open to all feedback to make this as good as possible for all our listeners. Stay safe and all my love, guys. You!